Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT 89.1, I'm Dana Hill. I'm so glad you've tuned in on this Friday, the 24th of August, 2018. Welcome to the program. It's our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. And I'm glad to welcome back to the program our friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Jim Wellahan. And also welcoming to, for the first time Dr. Rob Osiboff. And we are all going to be talking today about infectious disease in reptiles and amphibians. It's going to be a fascinating show. I hope you can stay tuned. Animal Airwaves Live is coming up after this news from NPR. Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so glad you've tuned in here on Friday, the 24th of August, 2018. And I'm happy to welcome to the program today for the first time, Dr. Rob Osiboff. And coming back to the program, uh, Dr. Jim Wellahan, who's a good friend of the show. And they're both here to talk to me today about infectious disease in reptiles and amphibians. Now, this is uh, going to be a fascinating topic, I think, because uh, though we often talk about dogs and cats and horses, too, and maybe even sometimes uh, livestock, we don't maybe get as much a chance to talk about reptiles and amphibians. And we are kind of like surrounded by reptiles and amphibians here uh, in Florida. And people keep them as pets, of course, when they're also out in the wild. So we got a lot to talk about. And uh, welcome back, Dr. Whalehand. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Asaboff. I'm really glad that both of you could come in today. Thanks Thank for having you. us. What are some of uh, the, the biggest issues sort of like facing uh, reptiles and amphibians, as far as infectious disease goes, I imagine that uh, there's all sorts of other issues like uh, habitat loss and so forth. Uh, yeah, well, so well, there's there's kind of two issues going on. One is the the sort of captive populations we see, and what's what's going through some of those populations, and there are some different uh, sort of challenges from aspect of there's large breeders and high concentrations and, and easy disease transmission. And then there's the effects that we're having on, on the, the disease we're having on uh, wild populations too. And, and and we're in a period of environmental stress where there's a lot of species that are fading quickly. And, and, and there, there are other concurrent pressures. I think if you look at, for example, turtles have a temperature-dependent sex determination. And with some of the uh, temperature changes, we're seeing uh, whole populations of sea turtles that uh, have have had their in eggs incubated at higher temperatures are all females. So if you need males to do that, and so in a situation where other things are stressful, is really when you're going to have infectious diseases have the biggest impact on on populations. Yeah. Okay. So it, maybe then uh, we can just sort of like. Uh, break the show up if we need to in terms of talking about, say, you know, uh, the animals that people might have as captive pets and then the wildlife, uh, let's say. But I mean, you know, I, I had just heard that about the sea turtles the other day and, and this isn't necessarily an infectious disease thing. I mean, what a, you know, what a tragic and kind of unanticipated consequence of climate change, right, yeah. to have sea turtles be that much more vulnerable because we all know that sea turtles were vulnerable because of, say, encroachment of people into areas and habitats in which uh, sea turtles would live and, and lay eggs. Uh, but to have something that, uh, you know, like 
climate change m- makes it to where okay, so there's not going to be the male sea turtles out there, and then if there is that what it is, they're only going to yeah. be female. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, if there's only females, then there's not going to be any more sea turtles. So uh, what a what a disaster. Yeah, it is. It is a significant concern, and actually, even from an infectious disease standpoint. So if you think about us in infectious disease, we are running running right along at 37 Celsius or 98.6 Fahrenheit, and that's sort of the temperature we're at. And one of the reasons that we go and uh, do fevers is because a lot of these, especially viruses and things like that, are going to be very limited on their uh, temperature range that they can reproduce and cause disease at. Well, we see the exact same thing with with uh, in reptiles, only they are much more fluctuant in their temperatures. So honestly, when we have a viral disease in a, in a reptile, one of the more effective strategies we can take is to manipulate temperatures because, you know, it, it, antiviral drugs are tricky. The viral virus is hijacking the whole cell and using all its mechanism. But if you change the temperature, the temperature that's good for the animal and not good for the infectious disease, it, you can't really take a human and go change their temperature deliberately. They don't, they don't appreciate that or a dog or whatever. <laughs> well, how do you know the... Uh, effective range that you can uh, do this without harming the animal while harming the virus that you're trying to get rid of. It, it requires study. I mean, the, the, without 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 the data existing out there, what what are effective temperature ranges for induction of diseases, and what what were temperature ranges that these uh, the host reptiles can tolerate? Um, you need you need that information to kind of put that together. And it's also a variable because <clears throat> it's not going to be the same for reptiles and amphibians. And depending on how a natural the natural biology uh, biology of a species and how the animals evolved, the actual temperature range where it's successful um, can be quite low. For so for many amphibian species, they stay at near constant temperatures in their natural habitats. So such deviations of temperature, which may have beneficial effects in other species, could be fatal. Um, elaborate a little bit more in terms of the constant temperatures in their natural habitat. This is like under a you know sort of rotting bog, uh, an, an animal might find a pretty steady temperature, or um, you know in some sort of body of water, it might have uh, pretty good luck keeping regulated. But um, you know the kind of temperature range that you're trying to um, eradicate uh, uh, some sort of infectious disease. I mean. Y- you're not going to have success doing that if you keep it at the temperature that it is in its natural habitat. Right. And um, amphibians, you know, the the highest diversity of amphibians tends to be towards the equator. Um, And as you get away with some with some variations, um, the diversity will generally go down. And as you get towards, you know, that area where it's more consistent, you can have species that stay at the same niche temperature with slight fluctuations between day and night year round. You don't have the seasonal variation. So, you know, in the Northeast with temperate species, there's, there's much more dramatic temperature spikes. But as you get further south, you have species that evolve to be, you know, if we're talking about Central America in high elevations, their limited range could be 68 to 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you go 80, 82, you can see mortalities in animals just because they've evolved in such a, a specific niche of temperature. Um, and that that can, you know, it's the husbandry with how people keep amphibians in captivity, whether it be a zoologic collection or a private collection, um, it plays an important role in that, but it also can play an important role in disease. You know, if, if we're going to just talk a little bit more about climate change you know one might uh, one might think oh well it, you know let's say the 
Earth is getting a little bit hotter and the range that these animals can live is between 62 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And if the world gets a little bit warmer, why doesn't the animal just move a little bit farther north or farther south or whatever, farther, you know, into a place that keeps it sort of cool? But, you know, the further north that you go, for instance, you then have wider fluctuations in temperature, right? You don't necessarily keep the kind of steady temperature that you need as the, the seasons change, you know, more dramatically the further from the equator that you get. So, you know, the, there's – there's really – it sounds like there's not a lot of places probably for these animals to go in terms of moving so that they could find themselves in a habitat that is still seems suitable. And there's also major geographic barriers. I mean we're talking – many of the species you know, are smaller, so moving greater distances is an issue. But um, so for example, for many species that evolve in a mountainscape, you know, Central America, South America mountainscape, at each elevation there's a different temperature climb. Um, so as global temperatures increase, the temperature climbs are shifting. But the animals at the top elevation, they can't make it to the next peak over or to the mountain that's 100 miles away because to get there, they have to go through the temperature climbs on the way down. So what you're actually seeing in many amphibian species uh, in response to temperature changes is shifting of species up in elevation. But the species that are already at the higher edge of elevation are the ones that are suffering the most. And what consequences do animals face the further uh, up in elevation that they go? Because while they might find themselves in a place that the temperature seems suitable, there are probably other aspects of higher elevations that may affect them in ways that don't seem necessarily obvious at first. Well, the habitat the habitat is not going to evolve as quickly as and we're seeing that the habitat is not evolving as quickly as temperatures are changing. So the natural the, the natural habitat, some of the aspects that, that they've evolved with for natural biology may not be present. Um, but the kind of the more impending, you know, issue is that as you as the temperatures change and, and there's stress on an individual animal and the, the environment's not the same. The response to stress in in most every vertebrate is is immunosuppression. So the re release of, of certain corticosteroids can result in immunosuppression, which actually makes them more susceptible to infectious diseases. And I think, for you know, to talk on the wildlife aspect of things, many of the infectious diseases that we're seeing um, may actually be popping up and becoming more prevalent because it's a it's a mix of increased susceptibility of the species because of environmental changes, other stressors that may make them more susceptible to disease. And we see then increase in disease prevalence of diseases that may not previously have been a major issue. You really anticipated my question. And that makes me actually feel good because that means that I'm sort of on the right track and keeping up. And that is uh, something we've talked about before, Dr. Wellan, and that is that, you know, populations that are under stress are at greater risk for infectious disease. That's something that I feel like I, I remember uh, from some of our discussions. And, uh, you know, it must be hard as scientists to kind of keep up with, with all of this change because globally the stressors are just increasing on uh, animals, right? Yeah. How, I mean, how do you even uh, keep up when – Infectious disease has, has always been a problem even before uh, these stressors were as significant as they are today. Well, I, I think it, it, that, that's what most scientists are so scared about. Uh, the, the, uh, the rate of change that we're looking at on our climate is just is astounding on a geologic scale. I mean, we've got, we're, up, we're up over 400 parts per million in CO2 in the atmosphere in like 150 years. Uh, that's not... 
uh, you know, these the, the sorts of sorts of rates of change. Yeah, twenty thousand years ago, it was it was colder, and Boston was under a mile of ice. But it was twenty twenty thousand years for 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 that sort of change. And the rates of change we're seeing now are something that uh, species are going to have a hard time adapting to because that, it's just incredibly quick how how rapid. Uh, this this climate change looks like it's it's occurring, and we're already losing things. I'm going down to a meeting. Uh, we're, it looks like we're probably losing the the Florida grasshopper sparrow this year. You know, we've uh, you're probably familiar with the loss of the northern last last male northern white rhino. Um, the the rate of extinctions is just amazing. Uh, are, are you did you did you uh, there was just a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago looking at uh, some of the uh, effects of climate change, and, and North Central China is is sort of their breadbasket, like what our Midwest is, where they do a, a lot of uh, their agriculture, and, and and there's 400 million people that live there. Uh, the uh, current models have some time between the year 2070 and 2100, having it be too hot for human life there, um, and so that that sort of rate of change is. Uh, we're going to have to make some rapid and hard decisions about what we're going to be able to save. Yeah. It, and it's a huge challenge too um, because you've got to have the political will to do something about it. And then even if you have the political will, uh, are the technologies in place to kind of implement at, at a global scale, right? Uh, because uh, let us say that you know, uh, let us say that hypothetically China decided that this was a big enough problem and wanted to do something about it. Um, you know, it also relies on its neighbors to help do something about it and then everybody kind of doing something about it and, and it becomes a very uh, complex issue uh, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we're coming up here on 20 minutes after 1 o'clock. It's a good time to take a break in the show. I want to remind listeners this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guests today are Drs. Jim Wellahan and Rob Osiboff. We're going to take a short break and we will be right back. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live on WUFT. I'm Dana Hill. My guests today are Drs. Jim Wellahan and Rob Osiboff from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. We're talking about infectious disease and reptiles and amphibians. And we left off, we were talking about some of the, the pressures that uh, these animal populations are under and the susceptibility to uh, infectious disease that kind of goes up when animals are under stress. Uh, we know if to, to shift for just a little bit to uh, you know even populations that are uh, kept as pets, right? Uh, you know if you don't take as good a care of your pet as maybe you should. Let's say you have a reptile or amphibian, uh, your pet can become uh, more susceptible to disease. Correct. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so what are what are some of the diseases uh, that uh, commonly affect? the reptiles and amphibians that people might keep as pets? Well, probably the most common pets we're going to see uh, coming through the hospital are going to be, we see a lot of ball pythons and we see a lot of bearded dragons. Um, uh, and those, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of different issues that are going on with some of those. So with ball pythons, uh, Oz, I don't know if you want to, there's a whole new family of viruses that we've just found recently called the, the, the 
they're going to be called the Barneyviruses, which is a nice uh, in purple dinosaur sort of name. <laughs> uh, and uh, the uh, in the bigger group with with uh, the Nidoviruses and some of the other things you may be familiar with. There have been some of the coronaviruses. You've probably heard of SARS mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. Um, and and so so the, they're. Uh, a fairly interesting group, and we're now recognizing that hey, this is causing a big problem in a whole bunch of pythons. So, uh, the pathology we're seeing associated with that. So these snakes will have <clears throat> really severe respiratory disease. Um, they have issues breathing, inflammation of the mouth um, that can become really dramatic. Um, and you can, in certain species with certain viruses, you can see, you know, a lot of the percentage of a collection can be affected and die because of it. Um, so in, in people who have, you know, multiple snakes as pets, there's a high risk of transmission between the snakes and particularly if they have different species of snakes um, but that are kind of related. So different kinds of pythons and boas, we know that some of these viruses can jump between those different species. Um, so they're, they're actually proving to be, you know, it seems as if the more we look, the more we look for them, the more we find um, so this is fascinating to me because you're describing uh, diseases that were formerly kind of unknown. And the diseases, the diseases excuse me, may have been present. Were they just not diagnosed? I think some of them were probably misdiagnosed. You know, it's um, a lot of the snakes with this particular viral infection commonly will have secondary bacterial infections. Mm. So it's easy to find the bacterial infection, but sometimes diagnosing the underlying disease that allowed the bacteria to cause a problem can be more difficult. What has changed that's allowed you to now find that this is something new and not instead just a variation of something old? Well, uh, some of the tools we have available now for for uh, uh, looking at we it, previously when we wanted to sequence a piece of DNA, you had to have a pretty good idea of what you were looking for or be able to grow up a whole lot of it, uh, and. Uh, with some of the newer sequencers, we can now take a whole bunch of RNA or DNA from something and throw it on a on a MySeq and have, or even larger sequencers, and have have thirty million sequencers, thirty million hunks of sequence to look at less than two days later. Um, and so it's you know it's a big bioinformatics challenge to sort through all of the results you have. But all of a sudden, we're able to say, put put these pieces together and say, hey, this is uh, something we hadn't recognized before as even being present. Um, another aspect uh, that I think we're we're pretty excited about. So, I should I should mention too that uh, Oz is uh, with their new service, uh, the Aquatic Amphibian and Reptile Pathology Program. Yeah. So I think that one of the you know we have these new techniques, but I think one of the exciting things is. We are, you know, so I'm a pathologist, so I don't do what someone typically thinks of when they think of a veterinarian. I usually diagnose disease and do disease investigations in animals after they've died. So I do animal autopsies. Um, and I think that we, if to look at where we are now with the amount of data that's out there and the number of people trained that can really recognize lesions and tissues of less commonly encountered species like reptiles and amphibians, it's becoming more people are becoming more comfortable with with reading those those types of samples. It's always been a passion of mine. Um, so I try to, you know, train pathologists who would maybe not otherwise be as interested. But in the diagnostic realm, it only takes a couple of people who can recognize in the tissue the underlying change that's, you know, 
yeah, we cultured a bacteria from this lesion, but there's something that doesn't fit right. There's something deeper there. So when it used to be you could have someone who would identify the something deeper there, but you could go nowhere with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have the advanced techniques and increased number of people. We can say there's something there, and it's becoming more cost-effective to actually do the more advanced investigation and find what's going on. Okay, so this is really important because – once you know what it is that you're dealing with, then you can actually work towards treating it, right? I mean, the the animal that you're investigating may already be dead, but if you understand what it was that maybe caused this mortality event, then perhaps there can be treatments down the road. Yeah, and that's, I mean, a lot of, you know, this is a, a common thought process when you think in terms of agriculture. It's about herd health. I mean, you know, there are going to be uh, animals that, that become sick. And for the safety of everyone, you really need to then diagnose what's going on. And so a lot of these, you know, you have to think about it in that aspect where it's the animal has already, if it has already perished, it's to gain as much information of that animal and protect the others that may have been exposed to it. So, you know, treatment is one thing. Unfortunately, for a lot of the viral diseases, we may not have great treatment modalities. But what we can say is that, you know, we have this animal that had this disease. Let's test your other animal just with an oral swab or something non-invasive and see if they have the same virus. And by doing that, we can start to maintain collections and have a degree of biosecurity so that we can make sure that animals that haven't already been exposed don't get exposed to the infectious. If if we're thinking about uh, an example of this that people might be aware of, would something like uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy uh, encephalopathy fall into that like uh, kind of thing where where there was a, a problem? They were discovering these cows that had you know some sort of disease, and then they just they you know looked at these dead animals and kind of diagnosed what the problem was, and then figured. Uh, that there was a risk for these animals being around other infected animals. Am I, am I totally like off in thinking about that? Um, prion diseases are probably the exception to the rule. Okay. What, what, what's actually happening with a prion is it's a protein that we're all walking around with and it folds into a certain conformation and it catalyzes other copies of that protein to fold into a certain conformation. So if you get a protein, if you ingest a protein that's folded in that conformation, it can cause your own protein that we all have already to, to change into that. It's a little bit like you ever read Cats Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut? <laughs> I have not. But, okay. but There's I, something in I, there I, called I, Ice-9 that's okay. sort of similar. But so that – prions in a way are not really an infectious disease. They're catalyzing something we already have in us. OK. So you can't really stop the spread of a prion. But <laughs> other infections, anything, anything but – but but mad cow disease, we would have been. <laughs> oh, so I picked the one that was a bad example. Yeah, sorry. Um, but I mean, this this matters because as you were just talking about earlier, you've got these uh, different snakes, right? Uh, that you know people have multiple snakes sometimes, and if you're talking about breeders or whatever, uh, then you've got these populations that if one of them is sick, then there's a good chance that others could become sick if they're nearby, if right. that if the disease spreads that way. Exactly. And the only way to really know how to look for other animals that are sick is to identify what caused the first snake to be sick. Yeah. And once you have that in hand, you can either say, okay, well, this is something we know about. We'll run tests. Or in many instances, you know, Jim and I, we find new things all the time. And so the idea is, well, once we find it the first time, we develop the test so that we can screen everyone else. That was what I was going to ask you is how do you develop the test? I mean if you're, if you're talking about something that was previously unidentified, the test doesn't exist for something that was previously unidentified. 
No, and that's where and I think that's where we're kind of at an exciting place in terms of technology, and then also with you know working with colleagues that know a lot of great stuff. You use different different techniques, um, you know, classical, basic science techniques, new advancing technology, and things that are even observational like pathology, where I just look at cells under a microscope, and you put them all together, and you can come up with really advanced tests that, you know, you can do a non-invasive sample and identify if an animal is infected with a certain pathogen. It may not be sick because of the pathogen, but it could still be spreading it to others. This is another interesting thing is that, you know, some diseases are carried right inside of us and we not we might not even be aware of their presence because they're not adversely affecting us but that doesn't mean that we can't transmit them to others absolutely i mean especially some of the diseases that have a long pre-patent period you know in humans kind of the classic example would be AIDS, where you could have hiv for a long time before you develop any clinical signs and you can spread things a long way uh and so some of these more slow-progressing diseases are actually, from an epidemiological standpoint, harder to deal with because, you know, with Ebola virus, if someone's sick in a couple of weeks and they're pretty obvious about it most of the time, and so it's easier to track something that like that down than it is to track down HIV and do the epidemiology for that. Uh, so with some of these more insidious, slow diseases, they're actually harder to, harder, harder to manage than some of the rapid kill things quickly. And in veterinary medicine, we actually have, you know, another unique aspect that, you know, a disease, a pathogen, say a virus that one species may have can do absolutely nothing. But if it's exposed to a related species can actually cause fatal disease. We know this particularly for some viruses such as herpes viruses. You know, they can infect their natural host and a very mild clinical signs, it won't be important at all. But if it infects a related animal, we've seen this in turtles, it happens in, in non-human primates. Um, you know, the, the herpes virus that we may have can easily kill many different species of primates. And a herpes virus they have that doesn't do much for them could kill us. Um, so you're starting to then look at an interface between species. And when people who have mixed collections of pets, which is a lot more common with people who keep fish and reptiles and amphibians because, you know, essentially they're maintained in a small enclosure, you know, and people really like them. So, oh, I've got this turtle that's from Africa and I've got this other turtle from South America and oh, this species of snake is from, you know, North America. You start to then have animals that are closely related but very different evolutionary backgrounds and they can spread diseases between each other. Well, people who are really interested and enthusiastic about reptiles and amphibians or, or the kind of person that you're describing. I mean, these are people who don't want to do anything wrong. I mean, they're oh, not no. they're not intentionally kind no. of putting their animals at risk, but there uh, are potential dangers at, at having uh, having these animals together, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and again, it's it's we don't know that until you know, those first cases happen. So how do you, as a scientist, looking uh, at these uh, animals and finding things that were previously unknown, communicate to others that there are new things that you've got to consider? Is the the information uh, spread uh, to other colleagues of yours, to other scientists in different places? Uh, does it get published to uh, folks eventually who have... I don't know, a financial interest even in some of these animals, uh, if we're, particularly if we're talking about people breeding reptiles, do they eventually find out and change their practices? I think that, you know, um, we we are always try to publish things. I mean, w science does 
no good for anyone if it just stays in the head of the person who finds things. Um, publication is really, really important. Um, Jim and I both present a lot of data at conferences. So that's you know an easy way of reaching a large number of professionals in a certain area in a small amount of time. And then that gets disseminated out. Also, you know, the resources available to people who keep reptiles and amphibians as pets today are endless. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful information available on the internet. Um, there's a lot of bad information available on the internet as well, but um, there's you can really start to find out a lot of information um, about different diseases. Really, the one thing that I like to always stress to, to people who have any sort of pets, but especially large collections of mixed animals is, you know, maintaining a degree of biosecurity. And that's, you know, that means that you don't put your hand in one tank and touch one animal and then go and touch another. I mean, wash your hands, you keep tools clean, that sort of thing, because you don't know what you can transmit from one animal to another. I mean, this is something that even at the Humane Society, they've kind of, they've got their mind on this. Uh, as you leave one room, you should sanitize your hands before you go and touch any of the animals in the other room. It occurs to me that the internet, as you mentioned, though, there, uh, there's quite a bit of uh, bad information on the internet. You're, you're right in the utility of the internet to help give folks information that they previously might not have had access to. I'm thinking uh, of you know my own sort of younger years when I had friends who were interested in reptiles and amphibians, but my friend who had a pet, whatever, monitor lizard or something, he would have only been able to access a book at the library and that book could have been from who knows when and might not have had any up-to-date information about any of the kind of things that you guys are talking about. Yeah. I think I think the challenge in all of life today is sifting through massive amounts of data as opposed to finding any information in the first place, you know, deciding what's what's valid information and what isn't. I mean, that's one of the nice things about the scientific literature is at least it's it's far from perfect, you know, but uh, but if Typically, the publication process is you'll write write up a paper and you'll write your materials and methods, what you did, your results, what you found, your discussion, sort of why anyone should care about that. And, you, and then you go back and write an introduction to, so that people can understand what the rest of it was about. Uh, and uh, You make that sound easy, by the way, but many people spend their lives working on this. I mean well, – at, at its heart, it's simple. It's the yeah. details that get complicated. Uh, and so then you send it off to a journal and an editor takes a look at it and says, well, this looks worth sending on to reviewers or not. So then it gets sent off to a couple of anonymous reviewers who uh, have the uh, have the go through it and they're supposed to be experts on the topic and they'll go through and say, well, you know, this, this looks interesting here, but they didn't – they've made an oversight here or addressed their criticisms. And you have to then turn around and address their criticisms – or they may just say, well, this is terrible. It gets rejected. Yeah. But, but assuming it does, often you know, people will have some comments to make to it about it and you'll have to address their comments and all that has to happen before it makes it into the, into the peer-reviewed literature. Uh, and and uh, it's not a perfect process at all and lots of things make it through peer review that are, that are, are problems. But it's, it's – you know, I, th I think Churchill – once said democracy is a terrible form of government. The only thing worse is everything else. Peer-reviewed literature yeah. is terrible. The only thing worse is everything else. <laughs> but I don't, I don't doubt, Dr. Whalehan, that you've been on both sides of that. I imagine that, of course, that certainly I know that you have uh, published in peer-reviewed uh, uh, papers or magazines and so, and so forth, but journals. But I imagine that you've also been someone who has reviewed other people's work as well. Yeah. 
I mean, and you you definitely go at it with the sincerity uh, and kind of scrupulous attention to detail. Uh, and, I hope so. <laughs> and so th- the the question that I have comes from like the the speed at which I imagine that the new technology allows you guys to discover new stuff. Are the resources going to be sufficient to take in all of this new information? I mean, if you're describing a new program, uh, Dr. Osiboff, about you know training folks to kind of look at the kind of things that you're looking at, you know, we may have more people finding more and more things. Are the resources out there sufficient to take in all of that new information and publish it and get it out to folks who can review it and then disseminate it to uh, the broader scientific community? Well, so, you know, some of the, some of the, um, you know, Oz was just talking about the uh, presenting things at conferences, and that's something someplace you'll often go to meet with a bunch of peers. Uh, and show them your early data before it gets out there. So that's one way of disseminating stuff. But again, you know, things you see at a conference you should take with an even bigger grain of salt and stuff that makes it into the literature. Uh, and and so it's 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 there has to be a balance between getting stuff out there and sort of vetting it to make sure that it's valid. And and you know, I think I think everybody's trying to go as quick as as quick as they reasonably can without putting out. Crap. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, it's 40 minutes now after 1 o'clock. You're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guests are Dr. Jim Wallahan and Rob Ozeboff. We're going to take a short break and we will be back with more of the show right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. I'm Dana Hill and my guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Rob Osiboff and Dr. Jim Wellahan. And we're talking today about infectious disease and reptiles and amphibians, but we're sort of like straying here and there uh, as uh, the topic kind of moves in that direction. And, you know, you've been on this program many times, Dr. Wellahan, and we've talked about a lot of really fascinating stuff as far as uh, novel pathogens go. And... You know, it occurs to me that with reptiles and amphibians, you know, these are not animals that the majority of people keep as pets, right? So some of this stuff just might be outside of the, um, you know, understanding or just not even on the radar of many people who just like have cats and dogs. But it's still, it's still significant, right? I mean, these are still issues that warrant investigation and, and warrant, you know, sort of uh, research and, and discovery and so forth. In my biased opinion, yes. Yes. Well, I mean, he certainly this you you do this professionally, um, but as you've mentioned on the show before, even if people are thinking to themselves, "Well, I'm never going to have some sort of uh, boa constrictor or whatever," um, as as we've talked about before, I mean, these diseases move uh, in ways that you might not even think of. I mean, you've talked before. I seem to recall about diseases that move from. Uh, you know, mammals that live, you know, near the like aquatic mammals, right? And then move into populations that are not even, they don't even seem at all like they're aquatic mammals. Well, yeah. So I, I think it's, I think it's important to have a bigger ecological understanding of infectious disease from the standpoint of, of most of the more interesting disease occurs when, 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 when pathogens jump into new hosts. And so the things that are 
scariest for people are not in us yet. And if we just look at people for what's already here, you're essentially waiting for things to come in and cause problems. So you can look at some of these groups of pathogens and decide, well, this really looks like it's great jumping around species to species. Perhaps we should understand more about it. I mean, I think a great example of something we currently look at is influenza. Um, and the truth is, is that influenza is quite likely to jump into people again, and it's going to be one of the one of the flus that's coming from other host species jumping in us that's going to cause the next big flu episodic. Um, and and so the uh, um, understanding what's out there and and monitoring it before it kills a whole pile of people is probably a good idea. It's also, I mean, um, you have to think of it also in a less human-centric way directly because while, you know, the individual may not care much about a snake or a reptile as someone's pet, um, the diseases in the captive population can spill over to the wild populations. And if you, you know, in Florida here in particular, the, the diversity of reptile and amphibians that are wild is, is very high. Um, and the disease that may be in someone's sick pet, you know, without, you know, may get out into the wild and spread. Um, and then you have problems affecting your native wildlife. And even for people who may not appreciate reptiles and amphibians as part of the native wildlife, they play critical parts in the ecosystem. Um, and disruptions of those populations can have effects that move up and can indirectly affect humans. I, that is such a good point. And I would really love uh, even just a small explanation about uh, an elaboration on how an animal that a person listening to this show might not give much thought to is part of a, a larger picture and how that is significant. So, I mean, I think there's been, you know, it, for, for people that enjoy this, it, a lot of it's obvious, but you, you really need concrete examples for people that are like, I just don't. Um, there was a study several years ago that came out of the Northeast. So I'm originally from the Northeastern U.S., and, and ticks and Lyme disease is, is a major problem. Um, there, was a, there was a study that showed that decreases in the timber rattlesnake population um, because of many factors, including habitat loss and, and uh, infectious disease, um, actually would then permit increase in the mouse population and white-footed mouse um, population. And with that increase in population, more transmission of the bacteria that can cause Lyme disease from ticks to mice and then indirectly cause increased potential for increased number of Lyme disease cases in humans. So it's, it's just a way of saying that you know, with the, the complex interaction of things, the snakes that may not have a direct effect on you by changing the normal balance of predator and prey and interactions can then indirectly affect human health. And these kinds of examples abound, right? I mean, Lyme disease is just one disease uh, that is, is terrible for those who get it, uh, it, but that's just one thing. I mean, there are I mean, how many different diseases are there, Dr. Wellhand? I mean, many, many thousands? I don't know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so uh, an almost probably uncountable number of, of diseases. And, and if you only are thinking about that and how it might eventually affect people, um, there are certainly ample examples. But a, as you mentioned, it's worthwhile to not just think from such a, a human-centric perspective, even though as humans it's almost all we can do. Um, you know, it's also worth protecting uh, wildlife because it's worth protecting wildlife. I mean, there's an incredible amount of biodiversity and biodiversity itself is extremely important. As that change in biodiversity happens, other species are inevitably affected. Um, and again, we don't 
there's so much to know about science. We don't know all of the unique interactions between species A and species B and what that means for species C. So as species B declines, what that means for species A and species C and then every other species down the line, we can't always predict. Yeah. I mean, there could be a domino effect that, that just doesn't register to us. Yeah. And there, the more diverse a system it is, the the more they're able to adapt to some of these changes. And so having having this diversity is, is crucial for our ability as a, as a planet to, to, to change. I was talking with somebody on the show recently about uh, diseases of, that are transmitted uh, via, say, mosquito. And, you know, one of the things that uh, people might remember from the last couple of years is, uh, is Zika and what a, an, a terrible effect that it had, um, particularly in regions south of here. Uh, but it, it definitely affected a lot of people and, you know, it was transmitted by mosquito. And I do recall at a time when Zika was kind of uh, almost out of control, the people were pondering, well, why do we even need mosquitoes at all? And, and uh, while I might ask myself that same question, people like you probably would have an answer as to why mosquitoes are part of an ecosystem. And, and even if it's not mosquitoes per se, there are many other small things that that escape our attention or gather our garner our attention, but in a way that we just reject, um, but still have some sort of role to play ecologically. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think uh – Mosquitoes until fairly recently have been pretty effective at keeping us from chopping down a lot of tropical rainforests because we would go there and have, have major issues. They're pretty good defense against humans. Uh, <laughs> they're no longer so effective as that. Uh, um, probably because we've been finding all these infectious diseases and developing vaccines and stuff. So maybe we should stop that. <laughs> but but, but uh, um, yeah, the, the complex interactions – Often are things that we don't recognize until things have collapsed, and that's that's the that's the significant concern. Is it when you pull this peg out, what's what's really going to happen? This Jenga block. Uh, sure. It, is it harder to kind of figure that out with animals that seem just a bit, you know, a bit lower down, kind of on the chain? Right. Like, uh, you know, reptiles, many reptiles and amphibians are quite small. Certainly there are very large reptiles and amphibians and uh, and, and we're aware of what some of those are. Uh, and, and many, you know, get our attention because there are other, you know, issues like when we were talking about the sea turtles, for instance. But I mean, there are there are reptiles and amphibians in Florida that the average Floridian has never seen or heard of. Right. And right. and consequently doesn't give any thought to. Uh, but there may be there may be issues affecting those populations uh, that, like we've just been talking about, the the kind of domino effect uh, could eventually catch up. And then one of the one of the unique challenges is we don't think about this as much with mammals, but many reptiles and amphibians are fossorial, or they live under the leaf litter, or they live in the you know deep in the mud in the water. Um, it can be really hard to note declines in populations of those species because we don't have a great idea of what their numbers are to begin with because to study their numbers and the species, it's very, very difficult. Um, so if they're lost and they are a crucial part of an ecosystem, we may not 
realize that they are lost. Um, for many of the amphibians, so amphibians globally are undergoing unbelievable extinction rates many, many times over what's ever been noted in the fossil record. Um, but there are a lot of amphibians, you know, particularly the salamanders, and there's another group of amphibians called the Sicilians that live, you know, in the in the soil and we don't have a great understanding of them at all but if we start to lose them um, we may see the effects of them being gone before we know that we've actually lost a species that is fascinating i mean you know you mentioned the rhinoceros dr wellhan and that's a, an animal that everyone is familiar with even from a young age and and so that captures the public's attention but some of the the animals that you're talking about it seems like we I mean, even experts can't know the number. Right. So there are folks, of course, from, you know, uh, professionals and grad students and, and enthusiasts who are very concerned about this, probably who go out and, and research and try to count populations. But but it's very challenging, right? Because these animals exist uh, in places that are sometimes hard to get to and they're small animals to begin with and uh, it can be – they. You know, their survival kind of relies on them maybe sometimes not being seen. Uh, you know, how how can the public, you know, do better to, you know, even even if it's just as simple as being informed, how can the public do better to kind of, you know, be familiar with this and, and do some good? I mean, I think recognizing, you know, the importance that these species may play for others is is probably the the primary thing. Um, I think I, I don't think we see it in as many other types of animals as we do with reptiles, but there is almost an inherent fear and or vitriol for certain species of reptiles. I mean, you see that a lot with people with snakes or things like that. Um, it's not only just, you know, a lack of knowledge, but an active dislike or um, which is, you know, not necessarily warranted. And that results in unnecessary treatment of those species. Um, and, and I think to get people away from that and to have everyone just appreciate animals for what they are would be really, really helpful. That's a great point. Just appreciate them for, for what they are. I mean, they don't have to amuse you or do any tricks. I mean, they just uh, accept, that, <laughs> accept that they exist in the environment and that they're they're part of our world and they're part of the place where we live. Even, even though, I mean, there's certainly, there's like, you know, you don't want to interact with a you know, a rattlesnake out in the wild, um, but respect it and just, you know, leave it alone. Yeah. Well, you guys, we're kind of like up against the clock here, but I want to thank both of you for coming uh, onto the show. Thanks for being here, Dr. Osaboff. I'm thank really glad that you could yeah. come by. I hope we can talk again. And Dr. Wellhan, always glad to have you here. You know, talking with you uh, is is sometimes I, I worry a little bit that the show has a tone that maybe seems a, a bit... I don't know, dire, uh, right? <laughs> but these are we talk often about really important and significant issues. Uh, and uh, even though the average person can't do much uh, on his own, maybe to to do much, um, I think that together, you know, if we just understand stuff uh, a little bit better, we can uh, make uh, make things uh, make an improvement. And you know, it's it starts with just knowing in the first place. So thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me. I want to say thank you to Richard Drake for directing the program today. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me again next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye.